You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian Pigeon Mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. You're the reason this podcast is still going. If everyone who listened to this podcast gave just $1 a month, we could both turn this podcast into a full-time job and be certain that we could keep it going throughout the pandemic and keep bringing you more episodes. It would be a win for everyone. If you're not a member and you're able to donate, go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. Members get ad-free episodes, extra episodes about fascinating topics, and hilarious, mostly drunken conversations we've had with other podcasters and guests. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl and sign up today to join the fun. Thebes was the gayest of all the city-states, and that was their superpower. Stand in the rectangular enclosure, bounded by low stone walls, and survey what you have discovered. A tall lion stands in the center, its head alone over six feet tall and weighing more than three tons. Years ago, a gentleman antiquarian had discovered it, his horse tripping over the exposed rock while he rode on his grand tour. Before that, it had been lost for millennia. But the lion is not the greatest of the discoveries here. You and your team have been uncovering the next one, the men buried beneath the lion. There are 254, buried in seven neat rows, as if standing still in an infantry phalanx of yore. With them in their graves, you have found hundreds of metal strigils for scraping sweat and oil from the skin, as well as the tiny bone eyelets from the laces of their sandals, cups to hold the final offerings to the dead, their swords, their spears, were not buried with them. One imagines the living had better use for them. These bodies tell a story. It is clear they died in the thick of battle. Even to the untrained eye, these bones have been brutalized, skulls with profound lacerations, as if the face itself had been hacked off with a sharp blade, skulls with holes that match exactly the shape of a Macedonian sarissa. The writing is there for anyone with eyes to read it, Cuts, gouges, hacks, and scrapes on shin bones, arm bones, ribs, vertebrae. These men were hacked to death, surrounded on all sides. They had fought valiantly and lost. But this is not the only remarkable thing about these skeletons. They have been buried in pairs, some with arms linked at the elbow, others holding hands. These men emerging from their graves have a story to tell, not only of the violence of their deaths, but their loves in life. They loved each other. This was an army of lovers. 
In your youth you too loved another man. You believed your love to be monstrous, to be suppressed and denied. In adulthood you tried. You married a woman. You tried to have children. Every so often another man would hit you like a thunderbolt. There was no name for what you felt, not in polite society. In your youth you combed the classics, searching for men who loved like you did, even in another time. Pausanias told of a band of men whose love for each other made them stronger, better fighters, the best of the best. But scholars of your time insisted that this was a spiritual love. It tarnished the memory of such valorous soldiers to suggest such a horrible thing as that theirs was an earthly passion. These men, emerging from the ground, are telling a different story. Theirs is a mute testimony, a battle cry louder than thunder, that the scholars of your time are wrong. There is only one thing to do with this knowledge. You will shout it from the rooftops. You will tell everyone you know. Men who loved men were the bravest of soldiers. They fought for the freedom of Greece. They held out thirty years before they lost. Their love was the reason they held out for so long. The greatest of discoveries in this grave is not the massive stone lion. It is not the grave goods. It is not these storied skeletons. It is love, buried here for two thousand years, now being painstakingly excavated. The love found here was more than spiritual, and it was more than honorable, and so is yours. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McManamy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Should we just dive right in? Let's just dive right in, Jenny. I mean, we got a lot to cover, and it's a real good episode, this one. It's the first time we've had an episode this season that I didn't feel like sobbing in a corner. Okay. There are dark parts to this episode, but like, I actually, this is probably our latest and best episode of the season. I'm from the U.S., so is Jen, although she lives in the U.K. now. In the U.S., gay people in military service has historically been a matter of controversy. In 1982, a specific law was put in place that banned gay men and women from serving in the military. But prior to that, being gay was actually a crime. And if it was discovered you were gay, you'd just be discharged. In 1993, Bill Clinton enacted the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy that basically forced LGBTQ people in the military to stay closeted. That stayed in place until 2011. That's only like 11 years ago. Just think about that. And trans people are still dealing with this. Under the Trump administration, trans people were again banned from serving in the military. That ban was lifted in 2021. But who knows what will happen in the next administration? And if trans rights to serve go, how long will the rights of gay and other gender non-conforming people last? We live in a country where LGBTQ people's rights to serve in the military is used as a political football, up for dispute and debate, and that is super fucked up. But it wasn't always this way, Jen. All right. Sing to me, Muse. I will sing to you of a better time. In a different time, in a different place, being gay in the military wasn't considered a drawback. In fact, it was an advantage. Still is! <laughs> <laughs> it still is, obviously. But it was considered an advantage by the society around them. The time was the 300s BC. The place was Thebes. And in this place, in this time, there was an elite military force. The best of the best, super elite, special ops, shock troops, and they were gay. 
They were so gay. And that was by design. Being gay made them better fighters. It made them stronger. It made them more effective. It made them strong enough to break the iron-fisted control of an oppressive regime that had held Greece in its grip for centuries prior and to hold out against a second iron-fisted regime that was trying to take it over. And today, I'm going to tell you all about it. See, I told you, this is the first episode this season that we got really excited and didn't cry the whole time. It's a light one. It's a fun one. Not saying that there are not very dark and disturbing parts, because there are, but it's a light, fun episode slash miniseries that we think you guys are going to love. So what was Thebes exactly? To get a sense of what was going on in this time, we have to go back to the time of the Greek city-state. Between the Bronze Age and the Archaic Age of ancient Greece, people lived mostly in small farming communities. As the population grew, those communities grew more complex. People started competing more fiercely for resources and grew more warlike. Walls and complex defenses were built, and more people gravitated toward the towns for both trade and protection. Gradually, large urban centers formed, and along with that came complex government, established laws, professional armies, and systems of taxation. These were the city-states, independent cities that controlled a certain amount of rural territory outside the city. Each had their own patron deity. Athena was the patron goddess of both Athens and Sparta. Which I didn't know. I knew about Athens, but not Sparta. Yeah, Sparta, I believe Ares was also a patron god of Sparta. Some of them had multiple patron deities. I mean, makes sense. You gotta head to those bets. Right. So the heyday of the Greek city-states was from around 700 to 480 BC, but city-states existed both before and after this. The last one to fall was Sparta in the 190s BC. People at this time didn't think of themselves as Greek, but as citizens of their respective city-states. In fact, the word Greece wasn't even a thing. We say Greece a lot. They did not have that word. That was not a word. That was not a thing. There were no Greeks back then. I mean, actual Greeks don't consider themselves Greeks. They consider themselves Hellenes. Right. I think, and that was probably the case back then, too. I think that was the word, like, Hellas. Liv has told us this, and I forget the details, but I'm pretty sure. It's Hellas. Do you know Do you know whose name comes from Hellas? Helen of Troy. Helen. Yeah. Helen, that word, Hellas, originally does not come from Greek. I think it comes from either Hittite or Phoenician. Like, it's not even native to Greek. Cool. Anyway... Depending on the time period, there were maybe 1,000 or more city-states in ancient Greece, most you've never heard of. A few, such as Sparta and Athens, have come down to us through history, and some, like Thebes, fall somewhere in between. Thebes was, in its day, one of the most powerful city-states, up there with other local superpowers such as Athens, the brainy one, Corinth, the party town, and Sparta, the scary one. They were the scary one. They were the scary one. And we're going to tell you why. Oh, you will know all about it by the time this three-part series is done. So the city-state of Thebes was in Boeotia, in central Greece, about 44 miles northwest of Athens today. Its earliest record of settlement is from around 3000 BC, and the city grew in prominence during Mycenaean times, around the 1400s BC, making it about as old as Athens. Thebes today is a town called Diva. It's a fairly small town. Nowhere near the stature of Athens, although it does have ruins and a museum. Here's the thing. You can drive through it today and kind of miss it. We did that. We drove through it. Unfortunately, we didn't stop because it was late and all the attractions would have been closed anyway. But, you know, it's a beautiful town. It's a lovely town. It's not like Athens is still extremely giant and very well known. So it's, it's like, but at the time, it was about equal in stature to Athens. But... 
Thebes was more prominent in ancient Greek mythology than Athens. Here are some examples. In the Iliad, Thebes is referred to as seven-gated Thebes. It plays a big role in the Iliad. Athens, I think, is mentioned like barely ever, maybe once. But Thebes was seven-gated Thebes. Do you know why? Because Thebes is older. Yeah. And historians speculate that it probably once had very impressive cyclopean walls, which were massive megalithic walls that the Mycenaeans used to build. No trace of those walls remains today, as far as I know. Thebes also had multi-story palaces, aqueducts, and extensive trade. Thebes was the place where the Greek hero Cadmus founded the Cadmia, the mighty citadel of Thebes. This was a legendary story, but the Cadmia was a real place, with ruins you can still see today. Thebes was also the place where the mortal woman Semele was burned to death by Zeus when he revealed his true form to her. Zeus then ripped her baby out of her womb and stuffed it into his thigh, by which I absolutely mean his ball sack, and then gestated it there, and eventually that ball sack baby grew up to be Dionysus. Fun fact, Semele is the daughter of Cadmus. It's all linked. And speaking of our lord and savior Dionysus, we're going to talk about King Pentheus, he of the Bacchae fame who was also Dionysus's cousin. That legendary play, The Bacchae, where the severed head of Crassus made its community theater debut, we all remember that. King Pentheus was the king of Thebes. Oedipus's parents, Jocasta and Laios, were king and queen of Thebes. Oedipus killed his dad, married his mom, became king of Thebes, and things basically went real downhill from there. Heracles was strongly associated with Thebes. Thebes was his hometown, and Heracles was their patron god. Thebes was the center of the cult of Heracles in ancient Greece, and many of Heracles' exploits in his mythology centered in and around Thebes. By around the 700s BC, roughly four major superpowers had emerged from among the 1,000 or so city-states throughout Greece. Those were Athens, Corinth, Sparta, and Thebes. And I'm just going to talk a little bit about what each one was like in a little bit more detail. Athens was the brainy one. It was a major center of learning, literature, philosophy, and the arts. It was the birthplace of Western theater, which began as theatrical competitions at the great city Dionysica, which we have discussed in multiple episodes in depth. It was the place where, quote-unquote, democracy was invented for some men. It excluded women, enslaved people, and anyone who wasn't a citizen. Athens was the place that wrote everything down, which is why much of what we know from this time period is told from an Athenian point of view. They were also known for their navy. Corinth was the fun one, the mercantile one, the spring break one, the rich one. What happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. Woohoo! And if you told someone you were going on a, on a business trip to Corinth, they knew what you were up to. So Corinth was located on the ist on the isthmus. Oh. It was located on the isthmus of Corinth. Isthmus. Ist ist isthmus. 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 It's a narrow strip of land that is not an island. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a narrow landing strip. <laughs> it's the landing strip of Corinth. That's what we're trying to say. And it's in between the Peloponnese and the rest of Greece. It's the happy trail of Greece, okay? It's right in the landing strip. <laughs> and, you know, that's the right place for it to be. So Corinth was known for having the most beautiful, skilled, and expensive sex workers. Its red light district was up on the Acra Corinth a giant fortress on a huge rock promontory that loomed up above the rest of the town like a giant's tooth, accessible by a multi-kilometer switchback trail reaching up from the sea. Think of the Acropolis, but higher and more impressive, and more of a fortress than a temple area. 
This was Corinth's downtown. And you really had to want to get up there because it was not that accessible. Like, that's the impression. I haven't been there, but I can't wait to visit. Me either. I'm so desperate. Next time. Sparta was the scary one, the militaristic one. And to be clear, all the city-states were militaristic. They were always fighting each other, trying to take each other over, double-crossing, and teaming up to stab each other in the back. Sparta was the one that oriented every single aspect of its society to maximize military toughness at the cost of everything else. By 650 BC, Sparta was the undisputed military power in the region. And who was Thebes? Well, the Thebans weren't the most powerful or the smartest or the richest. They were kind of considered a bit slow and uneducated and rustic by the other city-states. Especially the Athenians, but let's be honest, the Athenians thought everyone who wasn't them was like that because they're snobs. They're not that far away from each other. They're like the two quite close to each other in their big powers. So like, you know, they've got a New York, New Jersey rivalry going on here. I think they kind of did. Yeah, like Athens saw Thebes as kind of a backwater. Exactly. People made fun of their accent and the way they used to swear by Heracles or Aeolus, Heracles' charioteer and boyfriend who was also his nephew in some tellings because still ancient Greece. The Thebans were known for being strong and buff and good fighters, but not the brains of the operation like the Athenians or a terrifying war machine like the Spartans. They were known for switching sides a lot in the Peloponnesian War, so the other city-states saw them as slightly undependable. I do think when you're someone like Thebes and you've got Athens to the south making war all the time and thinking you're stupid, and Sparta just being a terrifying war machine with probably allies all over the place. Your allegiance is going to switch quite a lot if you're trying to keep yourself safe. And also, they don't strike me as being very warlike. They just want to live their life. Well, I mean, they were warlike to the extent that everyone else was warlike. Sparta really took this to an extreme, but everybody was warlike back then. The Thebans probably would have preferred to be lovers and not fighters, but they were stuck in ancient Greece, so they were fighters because they had to be. Can I just remind you who came from Thebes? Dionysus, the queerest of all the gods. So like we said, the history of the Greek city-states was a history of constant infighting. In the Peloponnesian War, which lasted from 431 to 405 BC, the two most powerful city-states at the time, Athens and Sparta, each leading their own league of city-state allies, fought for dominance of the whole region. In that fight, Thebes allied with Sparta. That conflict ended with Sparta in charge, holding an iron grip on the rest of Greece, backed by endless money from the Achaemenid Persian Empire, which had its own reasons for wanting Sparta in charge, which I'm not going into right now because it would be its own seven-episode arc, not going to do it. The Spartans put a gang of pro-Spartan oligarchs in charge in Athens, gutting their beloved democracy. They were called the Thirty Tyrants. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello everyone, Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? 
Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class, part of the Area of Media Network, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir to zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Our story about the sacred band of Thebes begins just about 23 years after that conflict ended. The time was 382 BC. Thebes had been aligned with Sparta, the militaristic and very frightening winners of the Peloponnesian War. And for a while, they stayed allied with Sparta. But eventually, some people in the Theban ruling class, the younger, more progressive, pro democracy, if you want to call it that, faction, decided they wanted to align themselves with Athens instead. You know, they were like, hey, democracy, not for all, but for some. Bearing in mind, we're, we're talking about them like they're the young progressives, but this is progressive for ancient Greece, so probably not that progressive by our standards. Exactly. It all came to a head on a hot summer day in Thebes. On this day, the city was celebrating the Thesmophoria, a festival to Demeter. All men had to leave the Cadmia where the rites took place. This was a woman-only sort of festival. While the women sacrificed dick-shaped cakes to the goddess, not going to explain that any further, the governing council of Thebes met in the marketplace far below the fortress. Demeter said, bring me your bread dildos. She did. That's all she wanted. If you want to learn more about bread dildos, join our Patreon. Meanwhile, outside the city walls, a Spartan force was camped out. Their mission was to go beat up on a smaller city-state to the north, Olynthus, which had defied a Spartan treaty. Since the Thebans were allies of Sparta, they were supposed to provide troops for this effort. The Spartans were camped outside the city gates right now, waiting impatiently for the Thebans to send out their contributions to this cause. The Thebans, led by those pro-democracy progressives who saw Sparta as a bully and favored Athens, were ignoring them and hoping they would go away. But the Theban ruling classes were not all on the same side with regard to spurning Sparta. The young progressives were pro-Athens, as we said, and they held a thin majority. But there was also an older, conservative faction who was 100% Team Sparta and furious about what was going on in their city right now. They didn't like that they were losing power and influence to these young upstart progressives. And they figured what those progressives needed was a good old-fashioned Spartan smackdown. Good old-fashioned ass-kicking. Yeah. So, the conservatives, led by a guy named Leontiades, made a plan with the Spartans outside. Eventually, the Spartans started to march off north, giving the appearance that they'd finally given up. But then, they swung around and ran pell-mell for one of the lesser watched of the seven Theban gates. 
Leontiades and his conservative pals were there to let them in. It was a hot day. It was so hot, you guys. It was so hot. It was so hot. Everyone was all oiled up and sweaty and naked and in their houses. They were not paying attention. Singing and participating and drinking a little bit. The women were by themselves in the Cadmia doing God knows what with their dick cakes. So as we said, only women occupied the Cadmia. Those not at the festival were taking refuge from the heat in their houses. The progressive ruling government was meeting in the marketplace outside the fortress and quite a bit below it. Nobody was expecting the Spanish Inquisition. I mean the Spartans. (laughs) The Spartan Inquisition. Leontiades led the Spartans unopposed through the city streets straight up to the Cadmia, where they burst in on the sacred rites, kicked out all the lesbians, <clears throat> I, mean the, I, mean the, I mean the women, and barred themselves in. There could have been some bisexual women there. Come on now. They were women enjoying other women and enjoying their dick cakes in peace. Leave them alone. Listen, there are only a certain amount of small joys that these women have in the ancient world. Just let them have this, please. Exactly. So they kicked out all the lesbians and bisexual women and barred themselves in. And now Sparta was in charge. They held the Cadmia. It happened so quickly that those young upstart progressives meeting in the marketplace didn't even realize it had happened until it was over. Not a drop of blood was spilled. After this, Spartan soldiers and their Theban allied enforcers scoured the city, rounding up and arresting anyone they could find who was openly pro-Athens. About 300 of those young upstart progressives were forced to flee the city and go into exile. Athens welcomed them with open arms. Incidentally, this was a feature of inter-party politics in Greek city-states. Losing faction would sometimes be branded an enemy of the state and arrested or driven out of the city. It's how politics worked back then. Sparta fully occupied Thebes, executed those who opposed their alliance but who couldn't or didn't flee, and set about installing military garrisons, purging unfriendly leaders, and putting pro-Sparta supporters in place as leaders of surrounding communities throughout the Theban countryside. So both the city and the state part of the city-state were now fully in Spartan hands. It was a purge. It was dark times. It was not a fun time. It was not a good time to be a young Theban progressive. Right, it was a good time for some people and not others. (laughs) Story of history. (laughs) Exactly. So the exiled young Theban progressives were led by a firebrand named Pelopides. Pelopides? Pelopides, Jen. Were led by a firebrand named Pelopides. He was one of the fiercest proponents of the Athenian alliance. He and his friends, those who'd managed to flee Spartan-occupied Thebes, started plotting to get their city back. They devised a cunning plan. A bold one, one might say. Under Pelopides' leadership, a group of 12 snuck back into occupied Thebes during a festival to Aphrodite. During that festival, the Spartan ruling military class that now occupied the Cadmia was planning to celebrate in style, and part of that style absolutely involved forcing highborn Theban women to come and attend to their sexual needs. Barf. Listen, these ladies are only interested in other ladies. God. With help from sympathizers inside the city, the 12 Theban progressives disguised themselves as these highborn women, got themselves into the Cadmia, and slaughtered the Spartans to a man. Yeah, they did. That's my kind of takeover. If it's gotta be hostile, it might as well be like that. (laughs) The small band of intrepid exiles had taken their city back, and they had done it looking fucking fabulous. 
But they knew that the Spartans would not let the insult go unanswered. It wasn't enough to have taken it back. Now they were going to have to hold it. And here's why this was going to be hard. That's what she said. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) We're such nerds. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so we were talking about why it was going to be hard to keep those Spartans from penetrating the city once again. (laughs) Those impenetrable penetrators. The Spartans were the ultimate impenetrable penetrators, okay? (laughs) I know they were. So we told you earlier that even among the very militaristic Greek city-states of the classical era, Sparta was the scary one. All the city-states were warlike, but the Spartans had elevated war to permeate every aspect of their society. Everything about their culture was oriented toward building a strong, focused, battle-ready, and undefeatable population. They honed the bodies and minds of all their citizens since childhood, both men and women. It started in infancy, where the Spartans, allegedly, abandoned at birth babies with disabilities or health issues or babies who were just judged weak because they were all about those eugenics. Yeah, and I'm not 100% sure on this. I haven't done a deep dive, but it seems to be that it wasn't just babies born with a you know health condition or disability. It's just like if they didn't cry hard enough. Their grip wasn't firm enough. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> if they didn't aggressively suckle milk enough, I don't know. <laughs> if that baby wasn't beheading people at the age of zero. The age of two minutes old. <laughs> chew your face off. If the baby without any teeth, because you know babies are not born with teeth. Then that baby was going to get its ass exposed. I'm sorry you didn't live up to the Spartan ideal, kiddo. Those who didn't make the cut, the babies without a full set of gnashers and nails ready to claw and bite and kill you from birth, were thrown into a chasm at the foot of Mount Tagetes, according to Plutarch, he of the flying ointment. So archaeological evidence, I'm just jumping in here to say, doesn't really back this up. There is a pit at the foot of Mount Tagetes, let's be clear, and people absolutely did get thrown into it, but according to archaeology, it was mostly adolescent and adult men who were probably criminals or war prisoners. Historians speculate that the Spartans could have abandoned babies the way Plutarch says, just not there. And baby abandonment was a thing back then. Well, I have thoughts about that. I imagine it was, but also, like, this is going to sound awful. If you, like, threw a baby's body over the over into a cliff, like, scavenger animals are going to just carry away that baby carcass. Yeah, it's possible that those baby bones didn't last as long as adult bones. Their bones are lighter, they're more portable. So those who survived the inspections were bathed in wine, not water, to toughen them up. And probably because the wine had less germs in it than the water. Yeah, realistically. They were always left to cry it out. Small children were commanded to not bother their parents with fears of the dark. They could suck it up, suck it up, kid. You know why? I'm scarier than anything you're dreaming about right now, kid. That's not the dad, that's the mom. Standing over you with a knife. Go to sleep, little one. Go to sleep or I'm going to chew your face off. (laughs) And if you really don't want to have your face chewed off, learn to chew mine off first. That was the Spartan way. (laughs) So dark. So boys who survived began their training at the age of seven. They were taken from their parents and enrolled in the Agoge. Agoge? I'm going with Agoge. That might be wrong. But we're going to... Just say it for the rest of the episode. We're going to continue to say Agoge. So the Agoge was a brutal military training school that taught physical strength, military tactics, pain tolerance, elite combat skills, hunting and survival, 
and extreme loyalty to the Spartan state. This was like a sleepaway school. They were not going home. I'm just going to say this. If your mom stood over your bed at night with a knife and told you to go to sleep that she was the scary thing in the dark, I'm cool with sleepaway school. Well, wait till we tell you about the Agoge, Jen. Oh, wait. Does it get worse? Whose podcast do you think this is? Fuck. (laughs) (laughs) So boys were under... Oh, here we go. We're getting there. So boys were underfed during their time in the Agoge. To the point where, to survive, they literally had to steal food. Plutarch tells us that the boys, quote, learn to make their raids adroitly upon people who are asleep or are careless and watching. The penalty for getting caught is a beating and no food. For the dinner allowed them is meager, so through coping with want by their own initiative, they may be compelled to be daring and unscrupulous. Sounds pretty bad, but wait, Plutarch has more to say. (laughs) Oh, wait, wait, Plutarch's going to tell us it gets so much worse. Quote, This was the object of the starvation diet. It was meager both for the... And and you know what? Like, I'm definitely getting shepherd vibes. Super shepherd vibes here, yeah. Right? Like, this is the shepherds, except the shepherds were enslaved and it wasn't just a small period of time in their life. It was, like, their whole life. Anyway, Plutarch has more to say about this. Quote, This was the object of the starvation diet. It was meager both for the reasons given and purposely that the youth should never become accustomed to being sated but to being able to go without food. For in this way, the Spartans thought, the youth would be more serviceable in war if they were able to carry on without food, and they would be more self-controlled and more frugal if they lived a very considerable time at small expense. They were cheap soldiers, is what he's saying. And to put up with the plainest diet so as to be able to consume anything that came to hand, they thought made the youth's bodies more healthy owing to the scanty food, and they believed that this practice caused the bodies, repressed in any impulse towards thickness and breadth, to grow tall, and also to make them handsome. For a spare and lean condition, they felt served to produce suppleness, while an overfed condition, because of too much weight, was against it. So they're just giving these boys cases of body dysmorphia. They're basically giving everybody eating disorders for the Spartan state. So food deprivation was supposed to make these boys into hardy men, able to withstand hunger, able to press on and fight wars on meager rations, and also hot. That's important, apparently. Yeah, as Jenny said, Basically, the Spartans were giving everyone eating disorders for the, for the good of their state and their, their army, which is real dark. You know, in a way, what they're doing to these boys is they are kind of keeping a lot of them from going through puberty normally. You know, only the strongest and toughest were going to be able to get the nourishment they needed for their body to grow up. The rest were all going to be kind of scrawny and weeded out. That was exactly the point of the agoge, right? Like the point of the agoge was to weed out the weak. And they really only wanted their strongest to breed. Eugenics. Like, okay, let's say 10% of the Agoge population grew up into strong, hardy men despite these conditions because they they fed themselves well because they were like the best raiders. Those were the guys that they would have wanted to reproduce and to be the dominant people in the army and stuff like that. They were really trying to weed out anybody who didn't rise to that level. The Spartans had a big population crash, which we're not going to get into now. But this is really laying the seeds for that. There were other hardships. For instance, boys were supposed to sleep on mats made of reeds pulled out of the river by hand and were given only one single cloak to wear all year. All of this meant the Spartans were trained from a young age to endure cold, heat, and hardship. Can you imagine if you got that cloak and it was the year you had your growth spurt? 
So you got it when you were four inches shorter, and now you just, it's like a little kid in a Batman cape. I think <laughs> that was the only garment that people had. Like, they had this cloak, and that was it. Essentially, unless you raided other clothes. But yeah, can you imagine? Like, it started off a normal length, and now it just looks like a little kid. <laughs> like, like an adult wearing a child's Batman cape by the end of the year. But I guess if you were a good raider, you'd have better clothes. Boys were expected to exercise constantly, and they were required to submit to naked inspections regularly. Further fueling the body dysmorphia. The naked inspections did not end in infancy. Yeah. And these boys underwent these naked inspections and they were judged. And those who were not up to standard were flogged. I mean, this is this is so awful. The boys were also fiercely indoctrinated through song and dance. The dances were also battle moves. They were like war dances that were teaching them like battle maneuvers. And the songs were simple tunes consisting, quote, This is from, I believe it's from Plutarch, quote, consisting merely of praise of those who had lived noble lives and had died for Sparta and are now counted among the blessed and also censure of those who had played the coward and now presumably are living a tormenting and ill-fated existence. Any who played or sang a note out of place or embellished with harmony at all or, you know, tried to make up their own little ditty, anything like that, any kind of superfluous fun whatsoever would be severely punished. Extracurriculars and fun were not allowed unless they were somehow in service to the militaristic Spartan state. Like, you couldn't sing songs that were not about the Spartan state. You were not supposed to read books that were not about the Spartan state. Everything had to be completely oriented towards the Spartan state. Every thought you had, everything in your life was in service to the Spartan state. And if you were not in service to the Spartan state at all times, and they were coming for you. You'd get flogged. Yeah, exactly. So even girls got to exercise and train, by the way, so they would grow into birthing machines to produce strong warriors for the Spartan military state. They were extremely hardcore. Spartan women had to have a certain amount of independence because their men were away at war constantly. And when they were home, they were more likely to eat and socialize at the Sisitia, which were common mess halls where men socialized and ate with other men. Family life was not prioritized. Anyway, the Spartan women were often left to manage, like, the basic running of society, so they were known throughout Greece as having more independence than women in any other city-state. But let's be clear, this was not a feminist utopia. Women in Sparta were mainly expected to be healthy and strong so they could be hardy and healthy wombs for the Spartan state, birthing strong, strapping sons for the Spartan war machine. That was their entire purpose in life. They had to keep the fucking state going and pretend like that's not what they were doing while their men were out at war. You also have to do all this unpaid, unacknowledged labor of keeping the trade going, even though your husband's really the boss, but he's never here. So that when we come home, our mess halls are filled with food and beer and we can hang out and ignore you again until we put a baby in you. I think you've nailed it. Oh yeah, that's the feminist utopia I want to live in. That's the feminist utopia we all dream of, really. To be ignored by our husbands while providing them with all of the sustenance. I mean, to be fair, it's probably better than being a woman in Athens. That is accurate. So anyway, at the age of 20, Spartan boys graduated out of the younger grades of the agoge. There were grades. Men weren't really out of the agoge until like the age of 30. But at this point, men were considered at least physically adults. They could vote in the assembly and serve in the military, although they weren't full citizens yet, and they weren't allowed to marry or have families until fully graduated at the age of 30. That's going to be some awful age dynamics. 
Well, you know, what's actually interesting is that I've read that men and women tended to marry at more equal ages in Sparta, but then women tended to marry in their early 20s. And men, I guess there was this rule about them not marrying till 30. So I'm not really sure how that reconciles because I've seen that written down in different places. Again, haven't done a deep dive on the marriage customs in Sparta. I mean, I guess if you were in your 20s and your husband was in your, his 30s. That's not the worst. It's not the worst comparatively. Like, we're looking at ancient Athens here where it was, like, 14-year-olds and 45-year-olds, so... And it's at this point that young Spartan men could be chosen for special missions. Some were chosen to serve on the Hippias, a 300-man-strong elite cavalry cohort, in which each one of three commanders chose 100 men. The idea was to create a rivalry, as each group of 100 would be fiercely loyal to the leader who chose him and be bitter rivals to the other two. Rivalry between the three groups was encouraged. The men were supposed to watch each other and report for instances of less than the toughest Spartan behavior to their supervisors. That kept the entire elite force on their best behavior. Everybody's a tattletale! It was an elite fighting force built on rivalry and paranoia. The Spartans built their perfect soldiers from birth, indoctrinating them into the Spartan state from a young age, drilling them in the arts of war until they were a single, one-minded fighting force that could execute military maneuvers with hairpin precision. Their elite 300-man special ops team had been fiercely indoctrinated since childhood toward war in a brutal regime that stamped out all fun, all frivolity, absolutely anything that wasn't dedicated to the Spartan state. By the time they reached the age of 20, each Spartan warrior was an unstoppable killing machine. The toughness of these warriors was Sparta's secret weapon. But the Thebans had their own secret weapon. What was it, Jenny? It was gay love. Oh. This is the swooniest episode I've ever done. It's so romantic. Again, this is the first time I've had a smile on my face recording an episode this season. You guys, it's true. <laughs> it's actually historically accurate. It's not just me making shit up this time. <laughs> so to understand Thebes, you have to understand its founding mythology. One of the most important stories of this mythology was the story of Heracles and Iolus. Iolus was Heracles's charioteer and lover who helped him in his 12 labors. He was also, in some tellings, as we've mentioned, his nephew. So this relationship between Heracles and Iolus was a classic Erastes or Romanos relationship, with a little incestuous twist thrown in there, maybe. Heracles was the Erastes, he was the dominant one, both physically, age-wise, and of course socially. And the Thebans revered this relationship. Iolus was a big deal in Thebes. They held an athletic competition every year in his honor and even named their gymnasium after him. And remember, only men can go to the gymnasium and they worked out naked. Naked and oiled. So lubed up. Gleaming. Naked, oiled, all that wrestling. Rolling around in the dirt with each other. <laughs> can we stop? Anyway, Iolus had a shrine in Thebes where Xenophon tells us that male couples swore solemn vows of fidelity and love to each other, kind of like a marriage vow. Because that was a huge part of Theban culture. We've talked about the erastes romanos relationship, that binary that the ancient Greeks were bound to. Ancient Athenians elevated this into almost a coming-of-age ritual, where young boys were groomed, quote-unquote seduced, which is basically groomed, and... It's groomed. Groomed, and mentored, quote-unquote, also groomed. 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 
by older men. Into pedophilic relationships, let's be very clear here. And let's also be clear here, this was kind of institutionalized toward the good of the Spartan military state as well. I don't think the age differences would have been as extreme in Sparta because everybody was in the Igoge when this was happening, but there still would have been exploitative age differences. Absolutely. But the Erastes and Romanos were not supposed to show too much affection for each other because that was taking energy away from the Spartan war machine. You can't even, like, like the person. You have to just be like, nope. (laughs) It's just so grim. It's awful. It's all just rape in the dark. It's horrible. Sorry to say that, but that is what I'm reading here. This is the way in which you handle your sexual urges as a horrible monster. So basically, the Athenian idea of male love, well, this is hetero, like to be clear, these were hetero relationships to the ancient Greeks because Erastes Romanos was dominant submissive. So these were not seen as queer to them. They were hetero because someone got to dominate and someone had to submit. So basically, like relationships between men in Athens were grooming and pedophilia and in sparta they were you know grim rape in the dark it's awful yeah but the thebans did things a little differently xenophon tells us that while relations between men were common throughout greece in thebes it was elevated to another level while male lovers were not uniformly accepted all over greece in thebes nobody saw anything shameful about it it wasn't that people thought it was shameful to have sex between men as long as everybody knew who the Erastes and the Romanos was but like being affectionate and loving each other in public was what was shameful in some areas you know but not in Thebes not in Thebes and I think what we're getting to with Thebes is the age difference we're talking about here is not going to be quite so unequal we get into that because that's a complicated question it is a complicated question so in Thebes men live together openly and the word for this is suzugentes which means yoked together or like man and wife. Male couples were not only common, but seen in loving, supportive, long-term partnerships, and as Jenny said, seen openly. And while in Athens, extreme power imbalances was the ideal. So, you know, we're talking about couples who were like 14-year-old boys and 45-year-old men. The picture we get from Thebes is that these relationships were maybe a little more equal. I mean, not a lot more equal. This was still ancient Greece. And the writers at the time all take great pains to assure us that all the gay relationships in Thebes were Erastes or Romanos. Don't worry, it's still all about dominance and submission. These guys were still ancient Greek hetero. That's what the ancient writers are telling us. But methinks the Plutarch doth protest too much. Plutarch is constantly popping up to assure us, don't worry, it's still Erastes or Romanos. This is still wildly inappropriate. Thank you, Plutarch. Still extremely disturbing. That's why I think that it was not, because you only have to protest that much when you know that, like, you're not right. Maybe you're being a little bit too optimistic there, but who knows? Look, this is the one episode of the season I've allowed myself to maybe not be the grimmest version of myself. Just a little bit of a piece of evidence thrown the way of perhaps not the grimmest interpretation of everything. The Thebans also had another founding myth, and that was of Diocles and Philolus. Diocles was a handsome Olympic athlete, and Philolus was one of Thebes' founding statesmen. These men were both Corinthians, and they fled to Thebes when Diocles' mom tried to break them up. They then settled in Thebes and lived there the rest of their lives as a devoted couple. When they died, they were buried in two graves facing each other, and the Thebans were very proud of these graves. They were an important historical site in the city and absolutely a must-see for tourists. And the best thing about this relationship is that, at least to my knowledge, these guys were both adults. 
The bar is fucking low. Plutarch and others take great care to inform us that don't worry, you guys, this is still Erastes Aramino. Somebody's still being dominated. It's okay. It's still disturbing. Thanks, Plutarch. So there was still an age difference. Philolus was the penetrator. Don't worry. We know who the penetrator is. But I'm getting the sense that Erastes Aramino's didn't always involve pedophilia, as long as there was a troubling age difference still in place. Which, ew, why are the ancient Greeks so gross? But still, okay, relationships between adults. This is a step in the right direction. A step away from that dominant submissive binary and toward queerness as the Greeks would have seen it. The men of Thebes swore lifelong vows to their lovers, worshipped at the graves of famous male couples of history and mythology, wrestled together naked in gymnasiums, named after said lovers, and got buried in graves facing their lovers' graves. Thebes was the gayest of all the city-states, and that was their superpower. So let's return back to Thebes in 382 BC, an elite group of 12 pro-Athenian progressives led by the firebrand Pelopides. Pelopides, Jen! Led by the firebrand Pelopides, just broke into their own fortress in fabulous drag and killed all the Spartans. The guys raised from the age of seven to be merciless, unfeeling, killing machines. And they did it all without messing up their festival of Aphrodite look, their lovely dresses and outfits. These guys were so fire. Just wow. Wow. Anyway, the Theban rebels knew that they were going to have to hold their city, and they knew that the Spartans had their own 300 elite man force, all keeping each other in check through rivalry and paranoia. The Thebans decided to build their own 300-man elite force, except they were going to do it their way, by playing to their own strengths. Their band of 300 elite warriors was going to be made up of 150 gay male couples. Ah, <sighs> swoon. The rationale for this was very simple and smart. While tribal and even familial connections could break down under the horrors of war, nothing was as strong as the bonds of love. A man would fight twice as hard to protect his lover, and twice as hard not to look like a coward or a fool in front of his lover, as he would in any other situation. In that way, the Theban band would keep each other performing at their best, just as the Spartans did, except through love and not through resentment and paranoia. Swoon! This all sounds incredibly romantic, and it was, right? Like, we can romanticize and swoon over this without being terrible people, right? Because of the Erastes Aramanos of it all. This is what I think about, like, on the subway or just walking around running errands in my neighborhood. I'm like, is it, is it ethical of me to romanticize the sacred band of Thebes or not? Um, well, okay. Here's what Plutarch has to say. Quote, the sacred band, we are told, was first formed of 300 chosen men to whom the city furnished exercise and maintenance and who encamped in the Cadmia, for which reason, too, they were called the city band, for citadels in those days were properly called cities. But some say that this band was composed of lovers and beloved. That last phrase, lovers and beloved, that implies an Erastes Aramino's relationship. He's saying these were Erastes Aramino's couples. And again, when we think of Erastes Aramanos, we think of 14-year-olds getting it on with 45-year-olds. And we've talked about how we see more equal relationships between the lines of Theban gay culture, but that might just be our own hopeful fanfiction. Was the sacred band just made up of extremely unequal, exploitative, pederastic couples? What was really going on, Jenny? I need to know. Right, so it's actually hard to say. The ages of the men in the sacred band are not recorded. 
But I've done some thinking on this myself, and I've really wondered, if these men were an elite military band, then how could half of them have been, like, full-on children? They couldn't be that young. And on the other end, they couldn't be that old, right? Yeah. Because of the time it would take to train somebody to that point, like, you wouldn't be 15 and done with your training, is the theory. And you wouldn't last as long as 45 and still be in elite fighting shape. Exactly. Think of professional athletes. Like, no one is saying you can't be in good shape after 45, but you're not in the same shape you were at 20 or 30, and it's going to show on your body. You're probably not in the Olympics anymore, most likely. The Sacred Band didn't record the ages of their fighters, but we can still make conjectures about their ages. The historian, James DeVoto, in his article, The Theban Sacred Band, compares the Sacred Band with other elite forces from different city-states that were active at the time to get a realistic estimate of how old they might have been, including the Spartan Hippias, their own elite band of 300. We do know the age range for that one, around 20 to 30, which makes sense. Like, that is probably when you're going to be at your most elite peak, right? Maybe some people a little younger, maybe some people a little older, but that's the age range. Devoto estimates, based on the time required for training and the ages of recruits in similar areas, that the ages of the men in the sacred band probably ranged from around 20 at the youngest to 30 at the oldest. So that's not that bad, right? Like, that's within a normal age range-ish, right? Those are definitely adults we're talking about. So here's where I come down. Were there some problematic age differences? I mean, probably, or it wouldn't be ancient Greece. Are you safe romanticizing this without being a terrible person and romanticizing terrible things? Uh, well, I mean, look, this, this is the ancient world. Everything was terrible. Pull up a chair. But the Devoto estimation does seem realistic to me. We can't know for sure. But I'm going to assume that the guys in this band were probably around the ages of 20 to 30. And I'm going to talk about this with the baseline assumption that everybody involved was an adult. Because otherwise this episode would be a lot more grim and less fun. And I just don't want to have it be that. So I'm going to take the less grim interpretation here. And now we're going to move on. And we're never going to mention pederasty again because I'm fucking had enough. It's been a long, dark season. and. I'm okay with just letting that go now. We've just done all those episodes on Unix. I'm ready. I'm ready for something lighter. Look, we've we've really delved into the pederasty of it all. It's not like it's not been covered. We can move on now. So after the Thebans took back their city with just 12 people in the queerest way possible by disguising themselves as women, they formed the Sacred Band, an elite shock force of 150 adult male couples made stronger and tougher through the fierce and fiery strength of their queer love for each other. How's that for sex magic, Jenny? Ah, oh, I love it. And as for what happened next, well, you'll have to join us next week to find out because we broke our rule this season and this is going to be a three-parter. So that's it for this week. Catch up with us next week on Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter or Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram and Facebook. We have some patrons to thank and you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl where you will get extra bonus episodes and content and us just being silly and we're thinking about introducing a new program where we have you guys ask us anything and then we answer your questions. We haven't implemented it as of this recording yet, but maybe by the time this drops, who knows? So who do we have to thank this week? Madison Ulrich, Roxy Sullivan, Live Reisinger, George Bull McLean, Tori B, Jordan Day, and Daniel Casey. Thank you so much for your support, and we will see you next week. Mm-hmm.